Good morning. It's a joy to be here with you today. Uh, it's always a privilege to, to come back and to be a part of this church. Uh, I bring you greetings from your family at Cherokee Presbyterian Church in Canton. And I want to ask you to turn to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 28 through 34. You get a double dose of the Gospel of Mark today as you'll be considering it considering it this evening. And as you're making your way there, uh, let me remind you that this section, we find Jesus facing a lot of conflict. He has already dealt with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and now it's the scribes' turn. Before we read it, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the word. These are the words of life, words that we require for our souls. We pray then that you would use it, that you would feed us upon the fat pastures of Scripture, that we might know you, love you, and live this one life that we have for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me if you are able for the reading of God's Word, starting in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered, And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Praise be to the Lord for his word. Please be seated. You might be aware that it has become popular in some segments of American evangelicalism to say Christianity is not a religion, but a relationship. And the sentiment behind it is well-intended because Christianity is not simply centered on ceremonies or, you know, a list of, excuse me, a list of do's and don'ts. It's focused on an intimate knowing of Christ. And yet, what do we find in the Bible? It describes the faith as a religion, does it not? Acts chapter 25, verse 19, religion is outlined as doctrine. Acts chapter 26, verse 5, speaks of religion in reference to church leaders. James chapter 1, verse 27, describes religion in categories of service. The concept of religion is scriptural. The problem is, Colossians 2, verse 23, whether it is a self-made religion, which means for us, we need true religion. Because something false is going to lead us astray. 
We need true Christianity. And to begin to understand what that is, it can be helpful to answer a question. What's our basic duty in true religion? Now, in answering this, we're not attempting to reduce the faith to, you know, the lowest common denominators or to give the five fundamentals. We simply want to know what are some of our foundational duties in the faith. Well, Jesus tells us about that in our text this morning. He directs us to three things. First, love God. Love God. As we come to the text, it seems that it was Tuesday of Passion Week. Jesus had been in the temple. We might say that Mark describes his activity here as a seven-round fight with the religious leaders. Members of the Jewish High Council had been verbally assaulting Jesus, asking him one question after another in hopes of tripping him up. But what did Jesus do? He flattened them with his answers, one after another, right hooks and jabs, hitting them to the floor. Starting in verse 28, it's round five. Yet this is, this time one of the scribes came up to Jesus and, and he heard that Jesus was disputing with the religious leaders. We have to ask the question, though, were the scribes. This particular scribe, he came up on a situation where Jesus had been, had been engaged in heavy conversation with the Sadducees. And there's a new man on the scene. Who were the scribes? They were the official copyists of the scriptures. They knew the Old Testament like the back of their hand. You wanted them on your Bible trivia team. It seems, though, that Matthew chapter 22, this particular scribe had been sent by the Pharisees to test Jesus. You need to remember that. His original purpose was to trap Jesus. But we quickly learn in verse 28, the scribe was a bit impressed with Jesus, with his responses to the Sadducees. And that led him to ask his own question. Look at verse 28. Which commandment is the most important of all? Now think about that question for a moment. The rabbinic tradition had, they had, they believed there were over 600 commandments that needed to be followed. With some being small while others were weightier. And this guy wanted to know what Jesus thought. Was it more crucial to you know, refrain from washing clothes on the Sabbath or to tithe. Could you rank don't murder in front of don't lie? Those were questions perhaps this man was thinking about. And even though the scribe's original purpose was to trap Jesus, let's not assume that he lacked some genuineness in his question. The scribe could have asked it so that he could have a checklist to follow. These commands are more critical to the faith than those, so I'll just focus here. And maybe he wanted a standard from Jesus by which to measure himself. Oh, I did this one and this one, and these were at the top of the list, so I think I'm good to go now. 
But Jesus answered this scribe's question in a way not expected. Do you want to know what's most important in true religion? In your duties? Jesus said, look at verse 29. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God. Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It's known as the Shema. It comes right after the Ten Commandments. It functions as a summary of sorts of the first table of the law. Jesus was saying to them, here's what's primary for you. There's one God, Yahweh, who delivered his people. You are to love him. And please understand, this is not the only time in the scriptures where love to God is called for. Deuteronomy 7, 9, Joshua 22, 5, James 1, 12, 1 John 5, 1 and 2, and many other passages show that love to God is a theme that runs throughout the scriptures. Repeatedly, we are called to love God. But how are we to love God? Jesus said, verse 30, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. For the Jews, the concept of the heart was the center of one's being. It's from where everything else flowed out of a person. It's, it, it's what makes up a person at the core. So that Jesus was stressing that love to God was to be with all that you are and all that you've got. And to emphasize this, other nouns are used. Jesus said, look again at verse 30. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. That is, with all of your desires. Your emotions are to be moved towards him. You want him above every want. And you are to love God with all of your mind. Your cognitive faculties are to be directed to God. So that you think about God. Meditate on God. That your thoughts are taken up with God. And then Jesus said you are to love him with all your strength. With all that you can muster. You are to love God. And did you notice all the alls in verse 30? How many are there? Four of them, right? And it tells you, love to God must not be with part of you, but the whole of you. From head to toe, inward and outward. Not just some of the time, but all of the time we are to love God. Don't you want this to be your chief pursuit in life? To love God like this? And yet, what does it look like to love God in this way? A lot could be said, I know. But I want you to consider the Puritan William Ames's response. Mark Jones, he talks about it in his little book, Faith, Hope, and Love. It helps us to answer the question, what is involved in loving God? 
First, it is a love of union. It's seeking to be with God, to spend time with him in the word and in prayer, to make glorifying him our primary interest day in and day out. And it's also a love of, satisf- a love of satisfaction, meaning we thirst for God. We delight much in God. Our affections are cheered by God and the things of God. And it also includes a love of goodwill so that we happily yield to God. We joyfully submit to God. We always want to do good by God. Do you love God this way? Communing with him. Enjoying him. And seeking hard after him. But why should you? Why love God? Well, it's because of who he is. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. He's all-sufficient, perfect, and incomprehensible. He's omnipresent, powerful, and knowing. He's most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful. He's gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth. And even more staggering, why love him? Because he loves his people. In ways that are beyond our ability to fully describe, God's affection burns for us. So that his love is intense and immeasurable, it's unflinching and unfailing, it's steady, it's sacrificial. And shockingly, it's a love that is shown to sinners, to rebels, which makes his love all the more dumbfounding. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been taken aback by the love of God? Or left speechless by his affection? For you. Augustine noted sinners are not loved by God because they are attractive. They are attractive because they are loved by God. Why love God? Because He first loved us. His supreme love towards us calls for our supreme love to Him. It's the right response to his love. And yet we need to ask ourselves a rather searching question. Where's our love to God? Is it shallow? Is it weak? Is it fickle? Is it like a seesaw going up and down, up and down, dependent upon our circumstances? Or has our love to God become distracted by the lust of the eyes, the desires of the flesh, and the pride of life? 
Or maybe we have a disordered love with our affection for God superseded by other things. Jesus is telling us our duty in true religion begins right here. Love God. Love God. But Jesus also says, second, love neighbor. Jesus did not close his answer to the scribe's question by only saying, love God. He placed an addendum on it. Because affection for God implies that we are to love that which God loves. And that's not simply a set of doctrines or some ceremonies. God's love is more extensive than a set of propositions or a list of rules. It's a love that is directed towards people. He created them, hence he cares for them. That's why Jesus said, look at verse 31. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Christ quoted from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And I want you to notice a few things about that simple statement. You shall love your neighbor. That pronoun, it's singular. Which is interesting because most of the use in the New Testament that are employed throughout the scriptures regarding commandments are plural and can be translated y'all, but not here. Jesus was getting personal. He was looking at the scribe. And in a sense, he's looking at us and he's saying, you are to love your neighbor. The Apostle John will go on and say in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, The one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot, cannot say that he loves God, whom he has not seen. I cannot say, I love God, if I persistently treat people like jerks. My practice is betraying my confession. It's partly why Jesus said, you shall love your neighbor. Jesus didn't recommend we do it. He's calling us to do it. And also note the word love that's used there. In the Greek, it's the same one that Jesus employed regarding loving God. Which highlights how our love for others is to be determined and affectionate. Because it's similar to how we ought to love God. And Jesus said, this kind of love is to be shown to our neighbor. Now, who is that? It's just those that we get along with, right? Only the people that are nice to us. Vote like we do. Make educational choices like we do. Look like us. Have the same interest as us. Of course not. Our neighbor is anyone we come in contact with. We are to go out of our way and show them love. Do you do that? Do you initiate love? Jesus said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Meaning, just as you think about your well-being, so you should your neighbor. 
Just as you are eager to look out for yourself, likewise with others. And why do this? Why show love to neighbor in this way? To people. It's because God cares for them. Even the unjust, the Lord shows goodness. In Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, we are to imitate God and walk in love. It's what Moses did with the Israelites who were wandering in the wilderness. Most of the time, they were belly aching about his leadership. Moses, you brought us out here to die. No food, no water, just a wasteland with enemies all around. We should have never listened to you and left Egypt. But what did Moses do for them? Did he say, you low-down and rotten scoundrels. Just go back then. See you later, alligator. I'm done with all of you. There were moments it seemed as if Moses felt that way. But he always came back to loving them. He prayed for them. Served them. Ministered to their needs. Gave them God's word. He listened to their problems and helped them find solutions. Moses loved them. Even though they were quite nasty towards him. Moses imitated God. And loving his neighbor. And friends, us to be us. But let's put a little more flesh on what it looks like to love neighbor. Consider 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 7. Loving neighbor is patient. It works long with the wrongs of others. And loving neighbor is kind. It goes out of its way to be easy with people so that its tone and communication is careful even when it has to say hard things. And love to neighbor does not envy or boast. It celebrates the accomplishments of others even when it doesn't receive the same success. And it doesn't try to draw attention to itself. Because love to neighbor is not arrogant, it's not rude, and that means that love to neighbor does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or, you know, resentful. It includes being an uncontentious person. Loving neighbor means that we are peaceable and gentle, that we seek To not rejoice at the wrongdoings of others, but rather to rejoice in the truth. That's why loving neighbor overcomes evil with good. Because it wants the good of our neighbor. And it shows itself in bearing all things. Not keeping a record of wrong. Loving neighbor means we forgive sin, regardless of how difficult that may be. And furthermore, loving one's neighbor entails believing all things, being charitable in thoughts, words, and deeds. And loving neighbor hopes all things. It treats people favorably. It sets out to encourage and build up rather than tear down. 
And love to neighbor endures all things. One preacher put it this way. Loving neighbor is like an army holding its position at all cost. It's long-suffering. This is what loving neighbor involves. And all people are called to it. Every person who has ever lived has this charge placed before them. But we who are Christians need to receive it more pointedly. Because as Jonathan Edwards put it, the Spirit of God is a spirit of love. And when he enters the soul, love also enters it. God is love. And he that has God dwelling in him by his Spirit will have love dwelling in him also. And brothers and sisters, that's not just a love towards God that dwells within us. It's a love towards neighbor. It's even a love towards enemies. Didn't Jesus say in Luke chapter 6, verse 27 and 28, that we are to love our enemies? To do good to those who hate us? To bless those who curse us? To pray for those who abuse us? To press this home, one writer tells the story of a slave who lived in the West Indies. His master appreciated him greatly and made him overseer of his estates. One day the slave went with his master to get more slaves. But while at the trading sites, the slave saw an old man from Africa. And he begged his master to take him. And after some pleading, the old man was taken. And over time, the master began to notice how the slave treated the old man. Day after day, he brought him food. He carried him from place to place. He made sure that he was neither too hot nor too cold. And so one day, the master asked the slave, Why are you serving this old man? Is he your father, relative, a family friend? The slave said, not at all. He is my enemy. He took me from my home in Africa and sold me into slavery. But the Bible says, I am to love my neighbor, to love my enemy. What a model the slave is for us. We are to do that. Like loving God, loving neighbor is a core duty in true religion. And yet, as you hear these words charging you to love God and love neighbor, perhaps you, like me, feel your ineptitude. Because you know that you do not love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You can say with the hymn writer, weak is the effort of my heart and cold my warmest thoughts. And you know that you do not love others, others as you should. 
1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7, hits you square between the eyes and marks you as a failure at loving people. Do you, like me, sense your lack of love towards God and neighbor? How do we respond to it? That's where our last point comes in. Love Christ. After Jesus answered the scribe's question, he said, verse 32, You are right, teacher. He affirmed Christ's words. And then he said, look at verse 33. To love God with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Which was an important conclusion. Yes, the scribe didn't get all of Christ's comments. He left out love God with the minds. But still, this scribe understood their outward adherence to the law was not true religion. Because it was devoid of hearts. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. The Lord sees not as man sees. He looks on the heart. The scribe got that. Do we get that? Duty and true religion does not start out there with deeds. It starts in here, in the heart. I don't want you to misunderstand me. Christian observances and ordinances, they are important. But they mean nothing without sincerity. So how does one get sincerity? More specifically, how can we have a genuine and growing love for God and neighbor? Can we go down the street and pick it up at Target? Buy it off the shelf somewhere? Is that how you get sincerity? Can we get sincerity and loving God and loving neighbor by simply following 10 steps? Is that how it works? No, it doesn't work that way. To think in such a manner would actually be aping this scribe. Because look what Jesus said about him. Verse 34. You are not far from the kingdom of God. The scribe was right regarding the importance of loving God and neighbor. And how that was more important than mere adherence to rituals. And as a result, he was close to the kingdom of God, but not quite there. What was he missing? What was he missing? There was no love for Christ. There was no love for Christ. Remember, he had been sent on a mission to test Jesus. He may have been a bit enamored with Jesus, but there was no affection for Jesus. He was not ready to admit the one speaking to him, the one answering his question was God himself. Jesus was Yahweh in the flesh. So that the same Lord who was to be the scribe's chief object of love was the one standing in front of him. 
He did not believe that Christ was the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord. And that meant this scribe could not really follow the two greatest commandments. You cannot rightly love God and neighbor without also loving Christ. You cannot rightly love God and neighbor without also loving Christ. In fact, the key to loving God and loving neighbor more is to love Christ more. Did you get that? The key to loving God and loving neighbor more is to love Christ more. It's to have your affections taken up with Jesus so that you love him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And here's the glorious thing about doing so. Christ is infinitely lovely. In the world, we can be fond of a whole host of things. But over time, we have a tendency of growing tired of those things. And we can be drawn to people. But then some of our smittenness might be lost when, when they hurt us. But none of that is the case with Christ. He is most of all attractive and it never fades. For example, think again about 1 Corinthians 13. Jesus is always patient, always kind, never envious, boastful, rude, or self-seeking. He's not irritable or, or resentful. He unceasingly bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And how do we know Christ is like this? What communicates that he is deeply and immensely loving? There is a green hill far away outside the city walls where our dear Lord was crucified and died to save us all. Christ went to the cross and he did it lovingly, which tells us no ocean can contain his love. No galaxy can encompass his love. No fires of hell can quench his love. So then do you want to love God and neighbor? Do you want to grow in doing so? You must start here with loving Christ. And how can you not in view of Christ's love for sinners? There's a story about a little girl who listened to a sermon from Numbers chapter 32 Verse 23, be sure your sin will find you out. While she was sitting under the preaching, she started sliding a little more underneath her chair because she felt a bit guilty. Before coming to church, she had told her mother a lie and it was weighing upon her. Following the sermon, she went home anxious. That night, she could hardly sleep so that the next day, she got up and walked miles back to church in order to talk to her pastor. And she asked him, what do I do with my sin? He said, 
Bring it to the Lamb of God who loved you and suffered for you and takes away your guilty stains. And then at that moment, a love for Christ began to bloom in her heart. Do you see what happened to this little girl? Christ's love for her to take her sin warmed her heart for Jesus. My friends, we can know the same. Christ has shown his love for us on the cross, which then by the Spirit stirs up our love to him. And this is not something that we ever move past. It's because the love of Christ is where we start and finish in the faith. And the love of Christ is how we move forward in the faith. Is your love of God lacking? Is your love of neighbor weak? Turn to Christ. See his love. Look full at him and ponder the height and depth of his affection for you, a sinner. And say with the Puritan Richard Richard Sibbs, come and have your heart warmed at the fire of Christ's love and mercy. And in response, love Christ. Because that is at the heart of true religion. May the Lord help us to do so. Would you join me in prayer? Our blessed Father, we give you praise and thanks for Christ, for who he is, and what he has done for us. We thank you for his words here in Mark chapter 12, where we are admonished to love God and love our neighbor. And we are given the means by which our failures to do so are forgiven. And we are provided the motivation, the impetus to move forward in loving you and loving those around us. It's Jesus. And so we pray that you would help us to have more love to Christ. That Holy Spirit, you would work such affection in our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.